If you would open your Bible to Galatians chapter 5, we are going to read a few verses and ask for the Lord's blessing on them. I want to read verses 16 down through verse 21. Paul there says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh... And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then our verses for this morning. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You probably picked up on it as we read through. This is a very sobering portion of Scripture. The last phrase that we read, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, stands over this paragraph like a beacon. It should get your attention. It should get my attention. These are sobering words and serious truth spoken by Paul. So what I want to do is is pray and ask for the Lord's help before we get involved in these words. So Father, we come before you. Lord, we have all been a part of a service where it seems like the Spirit of God rests heavy upon it. Lord, we're asking for that this morning. Lord, I'm asking for your help as I speak, even as I ask for your help for all of these as they hear. Lord, our hearts are dull. Our spirits dull. We need to be quickened. We need to be enlivened of your spirit. We need you to help us hear and understand. So, Father, I pray that you would help us in this regard. It's under your praise that we ask it. It's unto your glory that we ask it. Lord, we realize our own need. And Father, I pray that in your great grace and mercy, that if there be one here in this room this morning or listening at home, wherever they may be, that the truth contained in these verses, that you would use it to awaken them to your goodness that you would use it to awaken them to their great need of a Savior. The sins of this list that we have read are great and many. Many of us, Father, have been guilty, or perhaps even now are guilty of them. So we appeal to your grace, knowing that you are full of grace and mercy. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to backtrack just a little bit. 
because last week after the sermon, which was on verses 16 through 18, I was asked a sincere question. The question was, if I ever actually got around to saying what it meant to walk in the Spirit. While I attempted to do that, I want to see if I can do it a little more specifically here this morning. Because that is what is governing this passage, even if the last phrase we read about not inheriting the kingdom of God serves as a beacon and a warning, then walking in the Spirit is the antidote. And so we need to try as best we can to understand what Paul means when he says walk in the Spirit. Because he attaches to that what I'm going to call a very encouraging, helpful, edifying promise of sorts. If you walk in the Spirit, says Paul in verse 16, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He then goes on to describe this inner war, and we we looked at that last week. But if walking in the Spirit is the key to gaining victory by the help and Spirit of God in this war that rages within our soul between remaining sin and the beginnings of grace, then we need to understand to some degree, even practically, what it means to walk in the Spirit. And so I wrote this thought for myself primarily this week, and I want to share it with you because I think it's helpful in answering the question, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? If that's a desire of yours, if it's a desire that you sit here this morning and say, yes, I see the importance of walking in the Spirit. I see the tremendous help that it will be to me in life. And I see the sobering reality of what Paul says is the result of that person not walking in the Spirit. I want to understand this. I want to know what it is. If that's your desire, then Lord help us as I read to you this sentence. Walking in the Spirit is a determined activity. And what I mean by this, it's something that you must set your heart and mind to do. It does not come by default. Now let me be quick to affirm at the point of conversion, at the moment of your regeneration and new birth, the Spirit of God comes, takes up residence in your heart, in your life, in your mind. We're then told not to grieve the Spirit. We're told to walk in the Spirit. It's a determined activity. This is something that you must set your mind to. It's not a mystical activity. This is not something that is lived up in the clouds somewhere. This is real life, flesh and blood, Christianity lived out in everyday life. Walk in the Spirit. You either will or you will not. And let me remind you, hopefully you don't get tired or grow weary of being reminded of some basic truth. The scripture says that's helpful for us to be reminded. We come into a place like this to be sharpened. We go out throughout the week into the world and what happens is we are rubbed against the world and that sharpening that we have received in the worship of God grows dull, doesn't it? 
And so we come again. We need some foundational truth in the realm of sanctification. Your being conformed into the image of Christ, you are cooperating with the Spirit of God. And what I mean by that, it's His work, yes, but it's also yours. You are the one that must get up when you're tired and read your Bible. You are the one that must get up when you are cold as ice and pray. You are the one that must order and arrange the calendar of your life to make sure that you can gather with the saints on the Lord's day. There is discipline to be involved. And in that sense, you are cooperating with the Spirit of God in your sanctification. So walking in the Spirit is a determined activity. It's not a mystical activity. It is something that you do intentionally. While it is intentional, there are no foolproof steps to follow to guarantee that you've walked in the Spirit. I don't mean to say that in a discouraging way, but if you're looking for me to give you a list, do this, 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 and you can be assured that you have walked in the Spirit, I can't do that for you. Though I might be able to give you the rough outline, walking in the Spirit, any steps, any methods, any how-tos must be met with a heart intent on drawing near to God in Christ. If that is absent, nothing will work. If you haven't first settled in your heart and in your mind, I will draw near to God in Christ, then do anything else that you will. Nothing is going to work. Your prayers will be cold and lifeless. Your reading will be like you are reading mail in a totally different language. Nothing is going to, to draw you near to walk in the Spirit. If you do not have, and if I do not have, this base foundational thing settled, and that is, I must, I must have more of Jesus. And this is where we often fail, isn't it? I realize the struggle is just as real for me as it is you. Walking in the Spirit is to live in such a way that the knowledge of Christ and His gospel hold sway over everything. So I still haven't given you a how-to, have I? I'm hesitant to do so, but keep listening. It might come out here or there. Walking in the Spirit is to live in such a way that the knowledge of Christ and His gospel hold real sway over every aspect and part of your life. When we think along these lines, this is applied really in two areas. What you believe or how you think, and what you actually do. Another foundational truth is what you think, what you believe is going to affect how you live. Paul said this in first, excuse me, second Corinthians chapter 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they are not fleshly, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So if you want a how-to, this certainly would be on the list. To walk in the Spirit to some degree means to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Walking in the Spirit is an obedient walk. Peter says the same thing, uses just a little bit different language. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So there both Paul and Peter deal with this issue. If you want to walk with the Lord, then you must think rightly, take every thought captive, gird up the loins of your mind, and both of them equate those things with being obedient to the Lord. So if you want to walk in the Spirit, it's going to begin in your mind. It's going to begin with what you think. And what you choose not to think on. What you choose to put out of your mind as being ungodly and taking you to an ungodly place. And I'm not even here talking about those vile and depraved things. I'm just speaking about things that do not accord with the truth. If you are to walk in the Spirit, then you will discipline your mind, take every thought captive, gird up the loins of your mind, and walk in obedience to the Lord. But it doesn't just involve the mind, it involves your conduct. Familiar verses, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you. And beseech is not a word that we use anymore. I don't know that I've ever used it in normal conversation. I don't know if I've ever beseeched my wife to do anything. The word means to beg. I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Walking in the Spirit then necessarily means to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. New American Standard, I think, translates this more faithfully. Your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to the to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 6 chapters earlier, still in the book of Romans, Paul says something very similar. He says, "Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin." 
But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Okay, how to? How to walk in the Spirit? Begins in your mind. Take your thoughts captive. Gird up the loins of your mind. Throw the junk in the garbage where it belongs. Dwell and meditate upon the truth of God. Does that take discipline? Yes, it does. Second aspect of walking in the Spirit is to let those now renewed thoughts, those thoughts that you've taken captive to Christ, let those work themselves out in in real life. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Present your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Your eyes, ears, hands, feet, whatever it may be, use them in service to the Lord. Walking in the Spirit then necessarily will involve a few things. And I spoke of these last week. I just remind you of them here. The disciplined use of of the means God has provided. What are the means God has provided for you and me as Christians to walk in this world untainted by it? To live in it, but not be of it? To realize it's all passing away? It's all reserved for judgment and fire? Those means, this is the greatest means right here. If you are to walk in the Spirit, you will be a person that walks in the Word of God. If we won't begin here, then we're crippled from the beginning. If we won't begin here, then we're handicapped. Nothing else is going to work. We must be people of the book. And we must be a people who pray. And we must be a people who fellowship. We must be a people whose lives are governed and dominated by the Word of God, meaning the Word of God is hidden in our heart. It is studied. It is prayed over. It is prayed. It is defended. It is promoted. All of those types of things. And I think it's right to say The degree that you have involved yourself in pursuing spiritual things is the degree that you have walked in the Spirit. But I realize sometimes we can speak positively or give affirmations of things, dozens of things, and the point really still doesn't come home. And so to that end, let me just tell you what it doesn't look like to walk in the Spirit. And here I just speak plainly. If you've prayed very little this week, if you have paid little to no attention to the Word through reading, study, and meditation upon it, if you've ignored the fellowship of the saints, you've not walked in the Spirit. It's just that simple. If you have not given yourself to these things, then you fool yourself if you think 
And I fool myself to think that I've walked in the spirit. What we've done is made ourselves prime targets for the fiery darts of Satan and are in peril of falling prey to his wiles, his tricks, his schemes. To use the language that Paul uses in these verses, we are weak and the power of the lust of the flesh will overcome us. Remember, this is a real lusting of the flesh against the spirit. But I want to call your attention again to verse 16 before we move on. Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we see how vital and how important it is to walk in the spirit. Now turn your attention with me to verses 19 through 21. What we're first going to see is the evidence of the power of the flesh. We're not to think for a moment that remaining sin in us is weak. You feel its strength, don't you? In real life experience, through temptation, or perhaps even the actual practice of sin. Paul says, the works of the flesh are evident. They are clearly seen. The word evident here has as its base form in the original language a verb that means to shine. But not in a positive way. This is the shining or the glimmering, really, of death. The works of the flesh are easily recognizable, Paul says. One author has said, though the power of the flesh is concealed, it betrays itself by its own works. It makes itself known. And notice here the difference. We'll get more to this in recent weeks. But here Paul refers to the works, plural, of the flesh. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to see the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. There is a noticeable Difference or reason why he uses these words. The works of the flesh are plural because they're manifold, they're varied, and oftentimes they are set in opposition to one another. That's just a way of saying that there is no harmony amongst them. They're all destructive, they're all destroying, they are all dispatched by Satan himself, the adversary of all truth. There is nothing that holds them all together. They are the plural works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is quite different. In perfect harmony with one another. A reflection of the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. And we'll get more to that in recent weeks. But 
I want you to see, first of all, this list of heinous, gross sin that Paul lists. And we find these often in the scriptures. Lists where Paul just goes in detail of how we commit transgression against a holy God. This list, I think, can be broken down into four categories. Let me give a word of caution and also a word of encouragement. I'm going to say some things about these, but I'm not going to say as much as I could about these. I'm going to say enough for us to feel the bite and the sting of what Paul is talking about, but I'm going to stop short of you having to hold your child's ears. So just rest easy. The four categories, I think, revolve around sexual sin, idolatry or false religion, sins of malice or ill intent, and then the sins of lack of self-control. And then Paul adds, and the like. So just keep in your mind, as we go through this list, these things are just representative. Paul, this is not an exhaustive list. Many could be added to this. And so Paul uses that last phrase just to lump everything together and the like. But let's first look at this first section of, of sexual sin. The works of the flesh being clear, manifest, evident. And again, I'm reading to you from the New King James, so these are translated variously in the different translations. The word adultery is not found in some of your translations because of the difference in original manuscripts. So if you're reading New American Standard, ESV, something like that, I don't think the word adultery is even found. But the ones listed that fall into this category... Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Adultery is pretty plain and simple. Sexual relation with someone, not your spouse. Breaking of the covenant made before God and men. Paul said it's a work of the flesh. It's evident and it's clear that this has not sprung out of you from the Spirit of God within you. This is, not an, this is not an evidence of the Spirit of God residing in you. At best, it's evidence that you have failed in this battle that rages to win again another day. At worst, it's evidence that the Spirit of God is not ruling or reigning in your heart at all. The second word, fornication. You've probably heard many times that the word in the Greek here is porneia, speaks to our English word of pornography. This is illicit sexual activity. Paul says this is a work of the flesh. It's manifest. It's clear that this has not sprung out of you. The Spirit of God residing in you did not produce this. Again, at best, this is something that you failed in in the battle to win another day, or at worst, 
This is evidence that the Spirit of God is not ruling and reigning in your life at all. The next two words that we see here are uncleanness and lewdness. Hard to make any distinction between what Paul means. They're so closely related. I don't want to spend any more time on this category. I just want you to see the depravity that springs out of the heart of men going against the design and the perfect design at that of a holy God. Jeff Wilson, commenting on these verses, says, Any society that regards them with indifference becomes enslaved by them. It didn't take long in the creation of God for men to give themselves over to these very sins, did it? Think Sodom and Gomorrah. You can think Romans chapter 1. When God gives a society over to itself, when the society has exchanged the truth of God for the lie, then that chapter tells us, Paul tells us there, then all sorts and types of evil and depraved passions rage. And it's not only those who are practicing those things that fall under Paul's judgment there at the end of Romans 1. It's those who approve of them. Go back and reread that last verse or two. Those who are standing by giving a hearty approval to it. The second category here of these works of the flesh being manifest or evident referred to idolatry or false religion. And the ones listed, idolatry and sorcery. And again, I like what Jeffrey Wilson says on this verse. Hear this. Mankind is incurably religious. He will have a God. He'll go cut down a tree and carve one if necessary. But he will have a God. Idolatry seeks to satisfy this most basic instinct in the heart of man to come under submission to some higher, greater being. The problem is when God reveals himself in Scripture and he makes his commands and demands known, much of the heart of men stops short. That's why they want an idol. They can control that idol. That idol can be for them like a puppet on a string. They can make it say what they want it to say. They can make it do or not do what they want it to do or not do. And it doesn't require of them absolute submission to a higher being or authority. A lifeless puppet is what mankind wants. Not a true and living God. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That commandment, representing the holiness 
the authority of God over his creation? Have we forgotten that he is the creator? We are the creation. Have we forgotten that lesson that he taught through the prophet of he is sitting behind the wheel as a potter, making out of the lump of clay whatever he wants to make, making one thing out of this lump of clay, something else out of this lump of clay. God is sovereign. He's in control. That, to the mind of a Christian, ought to be a comforting, restful thought. My God is in control of this mess we call the world in life. And I am to have no other God before Him. The second in this category, sorcery, interestingly enough, in the original language is where we get our word pharmacy. The mixing of drugs to have some kind of illicit experience or response. Sorcery, some of your Bibles translated as witchcraft. Evidence of the strength of the flesh. Now, perhaps we've said so far that we're doing pretty good. When you read the list, adultery, no. Fornication, no. Uncleanness, lewdness, no. Idolatry, no. Sorcery, no. The next category, sins of malice or evil intent, Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. Power, the evidence of the power of the flesh. Interesting, this same list, many of the same things included in it are included in other places in Paul's writings when he says, put these off. Put them to death. To be involved in these is to not be involved in walking in the Spirit. The last category, the sins of lack of self-control, drunkenness, and revelries. A more modern translation of the word revelry here is carousing. Drunkenness is a result of what? A lack of self-control. Read verse 22. A part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So we have these four categories all summarized by these three words, and the like, which is Paul just reminding us that anything that looks or smells or feels like these things are manifest evidence of the lust of the flesh. 
Before we move on, I want to make a second point, and that second point is what we've read here is one of the strongest indictments against human nature in all of Scripture. Current philosophical jargon of our day says that man is really not all that bad. You just need to think more highly of yourself. You need to have a little more self-esteem. Don't be so hard on yourself. But the scripture paints a very different picture when it talks about the works of the flesh being manifest and evident. How desperate mankind in his original condition is. Realizing that not all who are outside of Christ carry these things to the same degree, not all sin to the same degree, but yet all are sinful. Let me speak to two groups of people, the only two groups of people that really exist, to the Christian first. What we've read in verses 16 and 17 This is the strength of the old man that resides in you. And if you leave him unchecked, he will kill you. Now, I didn't say you're going to lose your salvation. But to remind you of the words of Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It will kill you in other ways. It will destroy your reputation. Destroy your family. Destroy your life's work. Sin is no respecter of persons. You see it in the news. Some of the most prominent people in our culture fall into gross sin and it destroys them. Some of the most prominent voices in the Christian community in past years, have fallen into sin. And what has it done? Destroyed them. So Christian, this is the strength of the old man that resides in you. He is not to be trifled with. He is not to be winked at. He is to be fought against hard. Now, speaking to another group of people, to the unbeliever, this is the strength of sin in your life that has yet to be dealt with or broken. It's no wonder that we hear Jesus say to Nicodemus, who at the point of conversation with Christ in John chapter 3 We have no reason to think that he was regenerate. We have no reason to think that he was converted. Jesus tells him very plainly, you must be born again. You must be born again. Why? Because the truth of what the prophet Jeremiah had said in the 17th chapter, 9th verse, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus reiterates these words in Matthew 15, verse 19, when he says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Notice, it's out of the unconverted heart that these things proceed. It's out of the heart of stone that these things proceed. 
And we all sound a hearty amen to this statement. There is much sin to be saved from, right? But, thank God, there is a great Savior. Remind you again, Charles Spurgeon's words, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. There is a sense to which we all feel that and feel it keenly. So let's finish, and this is my last point, and I'll close. Hear the warning contained here. Paul says, I tell you beforehand, just like I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. First, let's talk about what this does not mean. It does not mean that anyone that has ever committed adultery Anyone that has ever been guilty of fornication or uncleanness or lewdness or idolatry or sorcery or hatred or contentions or jealousies or outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, it does not mean that those who were once guilty of these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't even mean that a Christian that has done these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The warning here is sounded for that person who for some reason is in his or her mind has so convinced themselves that they are Christ's but yet have never made a clear break from these kind of sins. The key word in this verse is the word practice. The word practice here in the, in the original language, the tense of the, of the verb, everything here speaks to this being a present, active, ongoing action of some duration. In other words, this is how you live. This is not a slip up and a fall into sin that is then repented of, confessed, forgiven, forgiveness granted. This is not what this is about. This is a habitual, perpetual lifestyle of sin where your conscience is hardened. You're no longer aware of, of the kindness or the goodness of God drawing you out of this sin. This is a settled lifestyle that leaves you in the point if God does not intervene mightily in your heart, shake you from your sin, that you will perish in them. Christianity begins with profession, yes, but it ends with more than a profession. Go read the book of 1 John. He deals with that extensively. What we're reading of here in this last verse is the fruit revealing the nature of the tree. The fruit revealing the true nature of the tree. That's the warning to be heard. And notice, if you would, that it applies to everything in that list. We want to confide it to the first category of sexual sin. But don't forget those, this applies just as much to those sins listed in the category of malice or ill intent. But be encouraged. What the gospel demands of you, it provides for you. What the gospel demands of you, 
is provided for you. It demands trust, faith, belief, and provides them by the power of God. It demands that you be holy. Is it any wonder why we refer to the third person of the Trinity as the Holy Spirit? That's not a designation given to that third person of the Trinity because He's the only person of the Trinity holy, right? God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. The Spirit of God certainly is holy. But the Spirit of God designated as holy in part because He is the helper of redeemed men. He is the helper of the converted who are struggling with this war that wages within their spirit, in their mind. He comes alongside, walks with them, leads them into a life of holiness. To say it again, what the gospel demands of you, it provides for you. The Spirit of God will not leave you helpless in this battle. The Spirit of God is no coward. You will never find Him hiding behind a rock. He will not forsake you. He is yours forever. He will be your guide to the end. So Christians, glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what He has saved you from. Left unto yourself, left unto myself, we would be the very definition. We would be the poster child for the sins in this list. Look one of them up in the dictionary. There's my picture. That kind of thing. But Christ has saved us from them. He has saved us from the power of the flesh, from the world, from the devil. What has He saved us from? A couple of things, really. He saved us from our sin, which brought upon us a horrible wage. The wages of sin is death. And that's not just a physical death. While it's true that our physical bodies die because of sin, what Paul is referring to there is the second death. The eternal death. The wages of sin is death. Christ has saved us from having to pay that wage. But He's also saved us from the wrath to come. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Almost the same list. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now listen to this verse. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. True. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, but not for everyone. For those who come to Him in faith, absolutely. For those who reject Him, there is wrath on the way. Malachi says it's burning like an oven. It's prepared and it's hot. Paul ends that by saying, in which you once walked when you lived in them. So Christians, glory in your salvation. More importantly, glory in your Savior. Those not believing in Christ, be warned. 
but also the invitation extended to you. This is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Be forgiven of your sin. Have your sins paid for. The debt that you can't pay, Christ will pay for you. He has never once turned anyone away. If you come to him, he will receive you into himself. And you will forever be a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and ask, Lord, that you would bless it to our hearing. That you would give us understanding. Lord, and those who are here this morning in Christ, we glory in our salvation. We see the greatness of it. We see the price that Christ paid for our ransom, for our redemption. And our hearts are filled with praise and gratitude overflowing. Father, I pray that you would help. Help that one that is struggling in unbelief. Lord, that you might do a mighty work there. Draw them into yourself, even as the scripture says, with cords of love. Make them willing in this day of your power. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.